The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. Uh, Hello. All right. I'm here. You're back. I'm back. You're back. Yeah. Right. And we're live. It is Tuesday, November 9th, 5.05 p.m. Eastern time. And uh, we are here. Ben has a fancy cocktail. I just got off a very, 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 very long Zoom meeting with the California Senate uh, testifying. Um, fancy. Yeah. yeah. Um, I made a lot of fun of California. It was great. I was like, why are you having me testify? I'm not barred in California. I don't live in California. (laughs) But um, it was fun. And um, we are not allowed to, but we are not allowed to have fun anymore. We are allowed to have Professor Steve Sloman, Brown University Cognitive Science Linguistics Department, and the author of Philip Fernbach. I have this on my shelf. Wow. I just pulled it right off. Um, uh, knowledge just, illusion. You mean you don't have it in your handbag? <laughs> no, I, yes, I do. I have a miniature version yeah. that I keep in my handbag. <laughs> like, okay. a little bulky. Um, why we never think alone. Um, so glad that you came on. You almost didn't because I asked you in September to come on and then you were, pl- I like sent you an email. And, and I was then, super excited. And I, I jumped at the opportunity. Not, not just to talk to your wonderful audience, but to talk to you. And Ben. And then, and then like my email hit it. And then I was looking for Ben to find out something. I think it was like, I don't know. I was looking for Ben's name and I typed in Ben's last name and the email to you popped up. And I was like, there's an unread email from two unread emails from Steve. Oh, crap. Anyway, now you're here. All is well. Um, you should know that I was wondering what I had done in the interim. Yeah, in the interim, like the, in the 48 hours between your, like, my invitation and your reply. Right. Um, you know, that is, that is always the way to respond uh, emotionally when, when you send an un, unanswered email to Kate. Um, uh, it's to wonder, like, what you did. <laughs> Because that's what Kate would do. She would. That know, would if, actually be what if, I would do. If, if I don't answer a message from Kate in like 24 hours, she always sends me a, are you mad at me note? No, I do. I, that's mm-hmm. actually accurate. I'm completely neurotic like this. So that's why. No I wonder spent... you were mad at me. I was more worried that you had like found out the truth. You know? Oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is what, may we ask? Yeah, I know. <laughs> So, never reveal it. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to interrupt, but I've got to say that, Ben, I I love your shirt and I have the same shirt. But, well, I have the. Wait, you have this. You have the Labrador? I have 12 of these shirts of different dogs. And I only wear dog shirts on in lieu of fun when I can, when I have a clean one. So it thrills me. This has literally never happened. That, that another dog shirt person is now a guest on In Lieu of Fun. 
Um, because, you know, I take a lot of shit for the dog shirts. They are uh, they're oh, very controversial because they're a little bit nipply at the thing. Well, <laughs> I, I used to wear them for Zoom calls, but I stopped when my colleague said, you know, your little nipples look kind of interesting. <laughs> I, this is the especially nipply dog shirt. It's the one that, you know, because the snout is not visible yes. ever, uh, people really find it uncomfortable. And I just want to say, I love, it. I love it. Men have nipples too. It's, uh, it's just a, a reality. Uh, some people call them dog eyes. Some people call them nipples. I'm not ashamed. Uh, I'm never going to look at dog eyes the same again. Thanks, Ben. Um, Yes, but this is pretty. Here are some real ones, or at least well, one at least real there's one. There's at least one. Gurgi's one-eyed. Um, but oh, speaking of dogs, Steve, I found out in re-perusing the book that we used to. My dog, my childhood dog, was named Cassie. We used to have a dog with the same name. Really? So, yes. You know, I I have had. Uh, we're on our third dog, Cassie. I'm I'm very sorry to say, is no longer alive. No. But we have a beautiful seven-month-old uh, yellow lab named Ico. But when I was a kid, I had a dog named Kelly. Oh, so uh, nice. my first dog was Kelly. My second dog was Cassie. And then I had a student in the course named Cassie Kelly. Did you <laughs> really? I did at one point. Not now. That's pretty excellent. Yeah, it was, really it was a little hard to take her seriously. Not because of her. It was all me. It was all me. You know? Oh, man. So, Cassie Kelly, if you're watching, yeah. <laughs> um, now you know, finally, yeah. why, uh, exactly. why uh, uh, you know, your cognitive science professor was unable to take you seriously. Yeah. Oh, gee. Um, Should I worry so, about this? No, I don't think so. I think you're fine. Okay. Um, I trust very deeply in the in the privacy by obscurity of doing at least 546 of these so no one will ever be able to find me like picking my nose in the one like moment that like I do it on the show. Um, the but like let's talk I really do I really want to talk about your book. I want to talk about it with you for a long time. I sent you um, I remember sending you another email telling you that uh, I thought that Malcolm Gladwell stole your title, stole your, stole your color scheme, overlapping color scheme. Oh, that's cover. right. That's um, right. In a similarly, like, kind of not the same argument um, of the book, but um, I'm just kind of, I'm super interested. Like, how did you, when I met you, you were teaching a course in similarity and it was a graduate level course. And, um, I don't know. We, I mean, you were my introduction to Danny Kahneman and Tversky and Medine and like a lot of things that like people tell me that like I have to stop referencing these scholars because no one references them anymore. <laughs> well, not Kahneman and Tversky. They're still okay, right? Yeah, but there's like you win a Nobel Prize, you get to stick around. But like, but I'm kind of referencing like I still talk about Doug Medine's like tree archetype study, which I just like his expertise study. Do you know that was assigned in your class, right? You know that that was. Like, um, that was yes. Now you're going to ask me to describe it. No, no, no. I can describe it because I describe it all okay. the time. But it's like it's the study in which he decides how you basically what we like what the platonic ideal of a tree is and like whether or not it differs between lay people and experts. And like, then he also kind of is overlaying the idea of whether or not it differs 
like basically he comes to the conclusion that the archetypal tree is actually a tree that cannot exist. It is like this tree that is enormous and has leaves and needles and is like, you know, is does all of the things and that there's just kind of like this super tree of this archetypal tree. And then people draw these conclusions and then it's different for the different expert groups, which is actually not what I'm as much concerned with. I like just like the interesting measure of their anyways, but, um, all of this stuff you really retain that stuff, I, I i just want to say i have no idea what you're talking about yeah, I so i think what she's talking about is the fact that people represent concepts generally with prototypes and yeah. often those prototypes are ideal members of the category like we tend to think about prototypes as the average right but if you say well who's the prototypical um hollywood actor then what most people think of is the latest and greatest star on in the movie, but they're hardly the average Hollywood actor. They're an ideal Hollywood actor in a sense. Right. So we sort of idealize. Yeah. So it's kind of, you think of like when you think of an apple, it's not actually the average apple that you've ever seen. It's like this perfect version of the apple, like, right. Like it's like the, the snow white version of the apple type of thing. Um, that's but anyway, so that's kind of, that was one of the things that we studied in Steve's class and it was great. It pretty much changed my life, changed Ben Pitt's life, who is also someone I should have on the show, who oh. ended up be going into, he, we were in the same class. I dragged him into that class with me and then he ended up becoming, um, yeah. he's now a professor of cognitive psychology. Where is he? <laughs> well. I think he's at, um, I think he's at Chicago, Northwestern. Anyways, like he's, yeah. So, okay, he's doing a postdoc. Yeah, great. He's doing a postdoc somewhere, but anyways. Um, all of that be, maybe he's at MIT. Anyways, I can't remember. But there's Berkeley. Berkeley. Sorry. <laughs> well, I'm trying to think of the platonic ideal of a place there's to do four people in the world care about the answer to this question. Yeah. One of them is Ben's mother. Right? Yes, exactly. Um, anyways, but so I'm kind of curious. Like, I find... Wait, how did my mother get in? Not there? your mother, the other Ben. The other Ben's mother. Yeah. Oh, the, oh. yes. But anyway, sorry, we'll stop with the kibitzing as I always do when I have my- As long as you're not talking about my mom. Yeah, who's actually awesome and has also been on the show. She I'm is sure. a, she is a clinical uh, a clinical virologist. So she has, right? No, no, she's a mathematical statistician. There we go. But, <laughs> you know. It's the same. What's the difference? So anyways, tell me about how you guys came to write this book and kind of- how you decided that you were going to kind of come up with this idea and like where your research kind of consolidated around coming up with this idea of that we don't actually think is like this perfect individual, speaking of kind of a idealized prototype, that we're actually kind of more of a mean of all of our, of our parts or kind of all of the things that we've kind of coalesced over time. Um, okay. Uh sit back and I'll try to answer all of those questions, except the last one, because I didn't really get the last one. But anyway, let me let me start with where you were at with uh, similarity in Doug Medine. So, so one of Doug Medine's many contributions to cognitive science and cognitive psychology is to show the importance of causal understanding, right? There's, uh, for a long time, psychologists thought that there's sort of this innate sense of similarity or a computed sense of similarity, and that that was really important for understanding so much about thought, like 
analogy and metaphor and any sort of comparison operation. And then Doug Medina is one of the people who came along and said, similarity won't do it. We have to think about causality, which never did anything for me because I didn't know what causality was. But then in about the year 2000, I discovered what causality was, or at least I was convinced about what causality was by a famous computer scientist named Judea Pearl, who wrote a book called Causality. And it, it made a huge splash. I also have that on my shelf. Oh, <laughs> if you've read it, I'll be really impressed. Isn't he the father of Daniel Pearl? He is. Uh, just for those no. who, for those who have a counterterrorism lilt in this, Judah Pearl is uh, the father of Daniel Pearl, whose uh, head Khalid Sheikh Mohammed cut off. Yeah, that was terrible. But Judea Pearl's book is on my shelf, not because of me, but because my partner is a computer scientist. So uh, that's okay. why. Okay. So um, it's a brilliant book, and it motivated about 15 years of my research trying to figure out how people understood causality and how we deployed causality in order to reason and make decisions and categorize the world and do all the stuff that we do. But after a while, I realized that we actually didn't reason causally all that well, that there were <laughs> definite limits to our ability to reason. And, um, you know, watching the Sunday morning talk shows, it became very clear that this wasn't just me, but, you know, there were real limits to how all individuals were able to reason. Um, and so I started to think about human ignorance. And, uh, and there's this finding that two guys, Leon Rosenblatt and Frank Kyle at Yale, uh, came up with um, around, actually not long after Pearl wrote his book called The Illusion of Explanatory Depth, in which they show that not only are people relatively ignorant, they don't know it. They think they're smarter than they are. No kidding. So <laughs> you've discovered that after interviewing so, so people. As, so as somebody who is, um, does not think I'm smarter than I am and is definitely not ignorant. Um, and in fact, who knows everything. Um, I'm, I'm just interested in how this work applies to those of us who are in fact omniscient and wholly self-aware. Yeah. Well, Ben, I, you know, I think the best person to answer that question is you. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> Um, okay, here, here, here's my test of your claims, Ben. Can you draw a bicycle? Uh, uh, no, I can't draw. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I, I actually can't draw anything. And uh, to be fair to me, I was speaking ironically. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> no, Ben has like a giant, uh, giant uh, imposter syndrome. But we, we do have like... There is, this is, um, I do quite like this observation and you kind of, you, it's just like on the inside cover of your book, I think of like just the basic concept of like, not only do we think we know everything, but most people couldn't tell you how a toilet works or how a pen functions or, you know, what is contained in asphalt. 
like or yeah. anything. We don't like think that. we know everything. We just think we know more than we do. Just, just, right. just to be precise. Okay. So, like, and this has been tested. Like, you people are asked to give an estimate, I assume, of like what they think they know about a given topic, and then they're asked specifics, and they come up with a less percentage of answers than. Yeah, basically, basically. So you ask people how well they understand how toilets work, and they say, you know, four <laughs> on a seven-point scale. Like I, I know pretty well. And then you say, okay, how does it work? Explain in as much detail as you can. And but I, so, so, but who's well, grading? Demonstration just to finish. Is it like plumbers who are who are grading these exams? Hold on. Um, so they say something. It turns out they don't say very much, but that's not the point. The point is that when you then ask them again how well that you understand how toilets work, their judgments are lower. So they can oh, that's interesting. that they, so the, they puncture the, their own illusion. So the process of trying to explain how a toilet works um, actually uh, explains to somebody that he or she does not, in fact, how to understand how the toilet works it reveals to somebody that they don't understand. okay so let's do an ex let's do an ex uh, a test of this i actually think i have a pretty good understanding how a toilet work works you just want to brag about knowing how a toilet works ben this is like not no 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 well you let's use you instead you do you understand how a toilet works I used to watch this show that was on like Canadian public broadcasting that was like how things work that did like a very in-depth like 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 half cut of like a toilet that I don't think I, I love that it, show. Like, it was really good yeah. uh, and uh, they but do you remember the toilet episode they also like go in about how they're all made and stuff it was really good anyways but um no, I don't actually remember. I couldn't describe it. I could be like, I could like draw a rough picture of like where the water sits and the level of the water and then like the like the role of like the water draining and then like sucking it back in and creating suction and like, you know, but I don't think I could do it beyond that. Like, how about you, Steve? Could you explain how a toilet works? Well, we do in the book, so I could read the paragraph. Mm -hmm. There you go. Okay. So what's, what are some other things that people think they understand and don't, but that I do? Um, well, I don't know you well enough to answer that question. I mean, uh, like there are certain things that you, I'm sure you do understand, like you understand how your sock drawer is organized, right? And oh, well, in, in the case of my sock drawer, there is no semblance of organization. Uh, it's organized uh, by gravity. Uh-huh. So a pile. Let, let me answer one of your earlier questions. Um, you said, well, are we asking of plumbers? And the answer is no. And the other answer to one of your earlier questions is the modern toilet generally works in America by what's called the siphon effect. And I can only explain it to a certain level of detail because it turns out even physicists don't fully understand the siphon effect. It's actually quite sophisticated. But look, the, the point we want to make is that, you know, there's this question. People are relatively ignorant. They don't know it, um, yet we accomplish things. So why is it that humanity accomplishes so much when we're all so ignorant? And why do we overestimate our own knowledge? And the answer we offer, and I think this is, in my mind, the more interesting part of the book, is that we live in a community of knowledge and we fail to distinguish 
the knowledge in our heads from the knowledge in other people's heads, right? So the idea is that there's a distribution of knowledge and we're all experts at something. So we all contribute a little bit to that community and, um, and, and it's all of us put together that makes it possible for humans to accomplish the amazing things that we accomplish. So people right, so in fact know how toilets work. So, so, so serious question about this. If you ask people how a toilet works or whether they think, whether they understand how a toilet works, they will say yes. But if you ask people whether they understand how a semiconductor works, they will say no. That's um, or, or at least I, I hypothesize that they will say no. Yeah. That's yet an the interesting same, question. Yeah. Yet the same effect is observable with the semiconductor as with the, uh, that is, there's the engineer's level of understanding of how the semiconductor works. There's the plumber's understanding of how the toilet works, yeah. uh, which is a kind of engineering understanding. And then there's the physics understanding of the of how the toilet works and the sort of particle physics understanding of how the semiconductor works, mm -hmm. uh, which is different from what the engineer is thinking about. Uh, and neither of those is really accessible to the layperson. But the layperson, I think you rightly argue, would say would would have an understanding of how the toilet works, which is I flush it and the shit disappears. Um, but would not profess to have any understanding of even what a semiconductor is, let alone how it works. And so I guess my question is, what's the point at which your, your idea that we impute specialized communal knowledge to ourselves, what's the point at which it breaks down and that we say, hey, someone in this community understands this, but it's not my job to? Mm -hmm. Yeah, th that's 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 a big difficult question. You're obviously a philosopher, right? And and the reason I say that is o only in the limited sense that uh, you know uh, journalism and uh, bullshit is the is a form of philosophy. <laughs> oh, really? You're not okay. No, I, I guess that because um, the presumption of your question is that people will say they don't understand how semiconductors work. And, and I actually share that intuition, but when, when I have shared that intuition in public, the response I always get is, I understand how semiconductors work. <laughs> so, you know, usually I do it with quantum mechanics rather than- You mean the, 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 un, the, the unself-aware version of my joke? Um, <laughs> I guess. Yeah, that's right. So, so I'm not sure what the boundary conditions are. Um, it's 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 a difficult empirical question, right? It does seem like it's got to be the case that if we've been playing around with something and we've been failing to understand it for a long time, then we're not going to think we understand it. That's true. Uh, so in some sense, you know, if we've already done the experiment on ourselves, if we've already demonstrated to ourselves that we don't understand, then we're not going to think that we understand. But another boundary condition um, is this. Uh, so I, I have this uh, other work where what we do is we, we tell people that something has been discovered or there's some new policy that some legislature is considering. And um, 
some people have identified it, but they don't understand it, right? So like scientists have discovered these glowing rocks, but they don't understand how they work. How well do you understand how they work? And people say, I don't understand them at all. But another condition, we say scientists fully understand how they work. How well do you understand how they work? And suddenly there's a little bump of understanding, right? Just from the fact that others understand. So the and, idea and, 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 and is is the idea here that people are embarrassed not to understand something that is understood, or right. is the idea more that we are collectively impu uh, imputing collective understanding to individual understanding? Completely the latter. It's the collective understanding. And and the evidence, one piece of evidence for that is that if you say that the the scientists understand it, but it's being kept secret because they work for the defense research agency, right? Now you no longer get the bump in understanding because you can't access the knowledge. So the idea is that it's not good enough that the knowledge is out there. You have to be able to access it. So how much of this is the possibility of so that's an interesting wrinkle because it instead makes me think that people are trying to claim knowledge for clout or for power or for signaling purposes within their community. Like saying that basically like there's like, like if something's not secret, like if something is top secret, people are going to call you on your bullshit. But why do people bullshit? They bullshit and claim that they know how a toilet works because they're counting on not being called on it in some type of way. They're counting on not having kind of the rubber meeting the road. So you overestimate because it's a costless, mostly, like, transaction. So, like, you overestimate the fact that you're going to kind of, like, like, so in a social interaction, it's costless, more or less. Like, if you're at a cocktail party, you're not a dick and, like, make someone sit down and draw, like, a, like a thing of a toilet. No, and, like, I've lost a lot of friends that way. <laughs> yes. I mean, that and the dog shirts, right? So, like, yeah. um, <laughs> like but um, I do think that, like, so this is, like, that, that actually, what the top secret part of it tells me is that they count, it's, it is both, like, the imputed part that I, I, I completely believe your your conclusion, but now I'm kind of thinking for the first time that like maybe there's a signaling part of it where they don't want to like they know that they could be, you know, that they can't bullshit their way into knowing something. Does that make sense? Well, so I'm trying. I'm 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 trying hard not to be an annoying uh, college professor, Kate. But no, I, no, this is I'm like, a little concerned you have it backwards. Like the fact that you don't get the effect when you can't access the information and you you can't possibly be called on it, right? Doesn't yeah. that suggest that it's not a presentation effect? That it's not because of how you want to look? Because that would be the perfect condition to say, oh yeah, I know how it works. And oh, you're right, because, like, because it's top secret, so you could be one of the people in on the system. Yeah, exactly. Oh. Yeah, yeah, that's true. But the more relevant thing is, is that people have the experience, right? Like if you ask someone to draw a bike, then most people think, well, sure, I can draw a bike. I've seen a bike a million times. The whole, the whole causal mechanism is completely visible, right? It shouldn't be a problem. But it turns out if you try it, for most people who aren't bike designers, it's incredibly hard. And you know, I, when I give talks on this, I show these pictures of 
that this this one it's particularly hard if you can't draw anything well, <laughs> fair enough it's a bunch of triangles right like just triangles there's some circles why is the relevant question whether you can draw a bike whether rather than whether you can describe mechanically because drawing involves accessing you know a, a part of your brain yeah. that for example in my case doesn't exist yeah which is the ability the ability to visualize things um yeah but i have a verbal I, like if you would ask me instead of can you draw a bicycle can you describe mechanically how a bicycle works i would have said very readily yes and i would be perfectly content to do that right now but i like like why is the acid test a a visual representation that's not the acid test and in fact the first experiment i talked to you was precisely the kind of causal explanation you're talking about right a verbal causal explanation so that punctures people's illusion. My point is simply, here's another method. And, and I think you're getting a little too hung up on the drawing part, because it's not the quality of the drawing that counts. It's the fact that people- You've will, never uh, seen my drawing. People will, will connect the chain to both the front wheel and the back wheel. And they'll connect the pedals to the top of the frame and not to the chain at all. And if you, you know, think about what those things mean, it means you're gonna have a bike that you can't ride, right? So it's another medium just to test this hypothesis. And it turns out whichever way you test it, you find that people think they understand, but it turns out that they don't. So can we skip, can we, if this is how people, if this is how people kind of reason, and it's not as individual as we think and people overestimate their like the amount of information that they know or what they know then it's and it's more a collective experience there is a part in the book that i like at the end that you talk about measuring collective intelligence and rethinking intelligence and so could we talk a little bit about how you propose that we you know that we do that and like kind of rethink about how we perceive intelligence sure so, so the idea, and this is certainly not novel with us, is that when we think about intelligence, we have to think about how much people contribute to the group rather than thinking about executive horsepower, right? Like we tend to think, how fast are your, are your neurons or you know, how big is your working memory capacity? And the idea is that if intelligence is really this collective entity, then what matters is not your personal horsepower. What matters is how much you contribute to the group. Um, and, and there's some evidence for that. So for instance, there's evidence that measures of empathy are as good at predicting um, a group's performance as IQ, actually better. Empathy measured how? Um, there's a test called the seeing the mind in the eyes test where you show people pictures of, of eyes and only eyes. So it's a face, but all of it's cut off except the eyes. And you're supposed to judge the emotion. And this has been used for years by, you know, clinicians and others to evaluate uh, like autism and, and um, people's ability to, to empathize, whether they, how much information they need in order to infer an emotion is the idea. Interesting. So what do you do then with 
categories of people who are clearly thinking thoughts that are radically outside the collective understanding. So uh, earlier today, I was uh, uh, tweeting about Beethoven um, and, you know, who is having tonality thoughts in 1825 that don't show up again, uh, you know, until kind of the early 20th century, uh, or at least until Wagner. Um, and um, and you can you can take this same idea in literature, in science, right? But that that people that there are these individuals who are, you know, who are radically exceeding the collective, uh, the collective uh, knowledge, or radically puncturing it somehow. Um, and who, you know, when you ask them, can you draw a bicycle, they kind of look at you like, well, what's a bicycle? And they say, what? Well, no, but I can do this, right? Yeah. And they produce, I don't know, the gross of fugue yeah. or, or the, um, so, uh, like, how, how should we understand that in reference to this thesis? So it, it's a great question, and it is the challenge, right? And... Um, the, the question I would ask uh, in response is, how do you know that these people are really doing this all alone? I mean, it, it seems to me that there's this cultural um, norm that says that all great advances come from great minds, great individual minds. But I, so I don't know the Beethoven case, and you know, you might be right about Beethoven, but I have talked to people about uh, like Einstein and um, you know other great physicists, and it turns out Galileo. It turns out that these people are never working in a vacuum, right? And in fact, what they're doing is they're reflecting, they're putting together advances that others have made, and they themselves will often admit it, right? So there's that great quote, right? I, I, I accomplished all this because I was standing on the shoulders of giants. Um, and I suspect that that's true of musicians too. I mean, if you look at like the Beatles, who are incredible musicians as far as I'm concerned, it's not like they came out of um, a blank slate, right? They, there, there was a movement that they hopped on, that they surfed. They were great. Of course they were great. They were great as a collective more than anything. But they also were taking advantage of all sorts of cultural changes and cultural innovations. And to be honest, so my prediction, not, not knowing much about Beethoven, is that if we look carefully at the history of Beethoven, we'll find the same is true of him. Well, there's a, there's a sense in which that's right and a sense in which it's not. So the sense in which it's right is if you listen to early Beethoven and late Haydn, there's a lot going on that's similar. Uh, there's a kind of, I mean, Beethoven as a young man was studying with Haydn. There's, he's, he's thinking, uh, and Richard Wattenbarger, I'm sure, can talk about this more eloquently than I can. But, um, you know, 
there is a larger movement of romanticism that is developing as Beethoven is writing. Um, uh, there is, um, he is not without a movement associated with him. And in that sense, you're absolutely right. That said, Beethoven sounds nothing like anything that came before him in a way that I think is not true of any other composer, that just the, the world of music sounds different after Beethoven writes than before. Um, and he writes some stuff, particularly toward the end of his life, that is kind of a hundred years before anybody's writing something that sounds anything like it. You know, the Hammer-Clavier Sonata or the, the, the late quartets don't have something that sound like them until, I don't know, until Bartok or something. And like, it's really a long time before you get... Yeah. Um, and and I and I do think there is no there's no argument in any field for radical individualism better than Beethoven. I mean, there may be like in some field I don't know, um, but, you know, 16th yeah. century French poetry yeah. or something. But but like like when I think of like somebody who you situate him or her in his time and he is nothing like anybody else of that period. I do react to, well, well there is this Beethoven character um, who seems to me to challenge the premise that you're working with, that there's, there's just not that much that's collective about it. Yeah, but that's not knowledge, right? Like that's pure like production. Like I, I mean, well, that is, I mean, there is like there is a difference between what Steve is talking about, if I may. I mean, like I think, which is basically that I think that you're arguing for a way that we like we like hold knowledge or access it and kind of work through it, versus producing like great works or something, which I think is a very different thing than what you're describing them. But are I'll they, let people, are they the same? I'm actually on Ben's side to some extent on this one. I mean, I am talking about reasoning, right? I am talking about the process of deriving conclusions and creating things. Um, and, and so look, I'm not claiming that individuals don't think. I'm not claiming that individuals aren't creative. I'm saying that everything we do depends on other people, which doesn't mean that there aren't also, you know, important properties of the individual that matter. Um, and and it, and it's subtle. Like when you say um, Beethoven came up with sounds that nobody else came up with, well, was, you know, was he living in an era in which sounds were being produced by new machines that nobody else had ever heard, right? Like culture is a big complicated thing. And all I'm saying, there were lots of inputs into what, uh, what Beethoven pr produced, I assume, not knowing much about him. And uh, we have to consider all that when we're thinking about the innovation, right? That, that we should stop always thinking about the great individual, right? The Bill Gates or the Steve Jobs who by themselves produced whatever they, no, they didn't produce these things by themselves at all, 
right? I mean, the point is kind of obvious. So, so you would say focus on romanticism, don't focus on Beethoven. Um, put more focus on romanticism than we tend to, yes. Yeah. Super totally. interesting point. Yeah. Dr. Doom, the floor is yours. Oh, uh, hi. Which which of the many questions should I ask? Oh, uh, I only saw one. Um, I, the Alison Gopnik one. Um, yeah. Are you influenced by Alison Gopnik's experiments with infants and her her discovery that uh, infants are doing a form of uh, Bayesian reasoning by experiment? And is that is that knowledge? So I've I've never bought Alison Gopnik's conclusions about Bayesian reasoning in infants. I, I I find that that conclusion way overstates what she shows. You know what she shows is that kids are sensitive to like sample size, right? Or kids are sensitive to some degree to what they already know, to what a Bayesian would call prior probability. Um, so yeah, I mean. Kids aren't totally irrational, but to conclude that we're Bayesian machines, as she sometimes sort of suggests, um, I think is uh, is way too strong. So, look, I'm I'm kind of on the other side of the the great divide in cognitive science from Alison Gopnik in the sense that I tend to focus on human irrationality, right? Whereas she's sort of promoting human rationality, um, but. Obviously, the truth is somewhere in the middle. Ev, I love this little experiment. Go for it and ask your question. Uh, so yeah, I'm working on the intelligibility of legal documents. Um, and we show two formats of the same document to two people. One is in kind of legalese and the other is not. And people who read the non-legalese version of the document, they think they understand the judicial system way better than those who read the document in legalese. Oh, cool. uh, while in fact their answers are less sophisticated uh, that that those who have read the document in Neely's and taught more like take more time to think about it. So is this a pro legalese argument that you're it's making? It's an incredible pro legalese argument. Yeah. So you're you're basically no, saying read read the terms of service. Don't no, no, read no. a summary. No. Well, uh, it, it's more than just legalese. It's not exactly, it's like abbreviation and stuff. It's very, it's not just complicated word. It's like nonsense. Uh, but they took, they take the time to, to, to think about it and like, oh, what should that, what does that mean? And like, they take lots of time. It's way longer, but they, and they're less confident in their answers, but they are really more sophisticated. I love it. That's beautiful. So were you influenced by the work on fluency, like Danny Oppenheimer's work on fluency? Is that the what point is that I don't work in that area at all. Uh, okay. So I have not any knowledge of all this literature. So if you have any recommendation, I'd be pleased to hear from them. Well, check yeah, out F, the yeah, work F on just fluency. Just quickly tell Steve what you do, just really quickly. Actually, I'm working uh, in law and I'm working on a, um, an AI tool who can translate from legalese to uh, more clear uh, writings. And so I'm really more in the tech sector, tech field, law That's and tech. Cool. And I cool. ended up doing this little test, which reveals some very interesting conclusions. So I'm yeah. slowly 
Is it convincing you to give up on translating from legalese? I mean, sounds like legalese is better, right? They learn more and they know what they've learned. Well, there, the the other thing that is interesting though is that the people who see the, the thing in legalese, they don't want to engage with it. So at the end of the day, when they, you force uh -huh. them to do it, they're uh -huh. better, but they won't uh, deep dive into it. So just for this only reason, it might be interesting to, to translate. Wow, that's really interesting. That's a really good study. Like it's kind of a clean natural study too. And it like goes, it's really counterfactual. You know who would actually also love the study? I don't know if you're familiar with her work. She was at Yale with me, um, Steve, is Rosanna Summers, who is like an experiential ju jurisprudence. And now she's teaching at the University of Michigan. I think she's cross-appointed in psych and, um, and the law school. Um, but her work is on consent. And it kind of runs a similar type of model of like when people more fully believe that they've consented and like what it is that you have to provide them with to like kind of structure what full consent is and she tests it in a bunch of different contexts, medical context, legal context. Um, but anyway, so that just reminds me, your, this little test reminds me of some of her studies. Um, but yeah, it might be interesting to look at. Um, yeah. Steve, sorry, go ahead. What was you going to say about- no, no, So, I mean, there are a lot of complicated things that could be going on in that experiment. So there is a lot of work on this thing called fluency. So when there's some evidence that when something is easier to read, then people read it with less deliberation, right? They think less, um, but they like it more. So Danny Oppenheimer has evidence, for instance, that if you give um, stock ticker contractions in a way that are pronounceable, then people are more likely to buy those stocks than if they're unpronounceable, because they're more. So that's one kind of thing that's relevant. Um, my student, Babak Himatian, has done some work showing that if you give people an explanation, an explanation that's obviously circular, like it's just we, we present it in such a way that it provides no information at all, then as long as it's an explanation that's entrenched in the community, people think it's a good explanation. So like if you say, why, why is this food healthy? And someone says, because it's organic. Well, it turns out that, you know, organic means a variety of different things and there's no real information there. Um, but people like it because it's a word that everyone else uses, right? So I'm trying to figure out to what extent that kind of thing might be going on in your experiment too. But I don't know. There's probably several things going on. Really interesting result. Get in touch with me and I'd be happy to give you some references. Awesome. Thanks. Yeah. Sure. Um, so I have to ask a question from Mateo who can't be here, but is a, um, precocious, uh, Yale undergraduate who regularly comes to, to, in lieu of fun. Um, he asked you like three questions. I'm just going to like pick, um, and some of them are super dorky. And so I'm just going to find one that I think will be fun to kind of close out with a little bit, um, which is what is, is kind of relevant to, uh, to a little bit what you've talked about already. What insights from fields outside of psychology have been most exciting for you to integrate to your own work? It's a good question given your the thesis of your book. <laughs> yeah. Well, look, I gotta say that after I wrote, we wrote the book, I discovered that a lot of these ideas were already 
sort of part of the discourse actually in journalism, right? Like Walter Lippmann had a lot of these ideas in, in the 1920s. And in political science, the, um, some of these ideas are kind of just, you know, part of the, of the, the discourse. They don't frame it the same way that we do. They don't talk about psychology and the cognitive science in relation to those things. But um, yeah, that stuff has, has been really uh, interesting for me. I mean, if you do look at the book, uh, what, what's his name? Matteo. Matteo. Um, you'll actually discover all kinds of stuff like from history and uh, medicine and you know accounting um, and all of those things had a big influence. So what's fun about this line of work is that you can just pick and choose from many, many fields. Yeah, I actually think that, so I was reading, I just, because I'm writing this paper, but I was rereading on Liberty Today and in rereading your book, I was like, is am I just finding similarity because I've read these things kind of close together. But actually, Mill has this very like, you know, his entire thesis on like the the value of speech and like the like the, the society's working through of, you know, of all of, of like the freedom of ideas and figuring out what's correct. And he also has this kind of very, to your point about humility before with Ben, <laughs> um, had the, has a point about how like how un, the, the how uncertain everything is and that everyone is certain of their opinions and then like of course this like should fall away and does fall away and everything is only true in so much that it like is untested uh okay. I, it, yeah i mean it's just like i think that it's i think that it's a i i i i don't know i tend towards thinking about things in the way that you think about them um i also um, are you familiar with, um, oh my God, I'm going to totally forget. He's uh, Robert um, Sapolnik, the um, bi biologist at Stanford, who does a lot of work on like the bioevolutionist. Bio Anyways, he's, he's, um, he's excellent. But it reminds me a lot about his kind of ideas about biology and ecology and that like there is this holistic kind of notion of, of how we exist in alongside all of these parasites and bacteria and like all these other types of things. And we think that we're so individual, but we're actually many, many things dependent on the other, but. Yeah, no, the, the study of collective intelligence is booming and um, it comes in many forms. Some having to do with like the emergent properties of simple organisms, like how the ants build those incredible colonies, right? Um, and how they, do they build those incredible I know, I, 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 <laughs> it involves chemicals and simple creatures doing simple things with a very complex result and to that degree i think you know that, that that's not a bad description of humans but i don't want to pretend that the the human brain is isn't able to represent the world to some degree and to come up with you know new creative ideas in the way that apparently Beethoven did. I'm actually not so surprised to hear that Beethoven did. Um, this has been awesome. I'm curious, what's the next thing you're working on? Um, yeah, that's that's a great question. I mean, I've had I'm I'm working on a variety of things. Uh, not surprisingly, some of them have to do with COVID, right? So for instance, yeah. published a couple of papers recently showing that 
Um, if you want to know whether someone wears masks or socially distances, um, don't don't ask what their risk factors are. Uh, don't ask even what they think their risk factors are. Rather, just ask their political party, yeah. which isn't terribly surprising, but it's perfectly consistent with the ideas that we've been throwing around, right? It, it also suggests that there's a... Um, that that this isn't merely an exercise in knowledge it's an exercise in which i think is more intuitive to people in attitude oh absolutely yeah yeah no that's look the the book actually at, at the beginning it came out pretty much when trump was elected and there were a lot of people at that time who just couldn't figure out what had happened and why it had happened. There was a lot of confusion. And it was to our benefit. We sold a bunch of copies and we got a bunch of good press because we offered, you know, a tiny little bit of an answer to that question. The answer being, well, people don't think things through themselves. They rather are channels for their communities. Right. Yeah. I mean, I... I would put this slightly, I would put this much more in the kind of the, the performative signaling capacity, but maybe I'm like flipping as I always, I guess I always do, as you remind me, the causality. <laughs> the, but I mean, I, I, I don't know. It's, are you performing for your community or are you channeling your community? Like, are you performing to signal oh, back I to your community or are you performing, are you performing yeah. to like channel your community yeah. towards other people? Um, I'm going to know both at the same time, probably. I mean, this is also, by the way, we should have you on at some point. I would be thrilled to hear your thoughts about how psychology has been taken over by by business schools. Uh, I wonder if you have thoughts on that. I don't well, even know. Well, a certain kind of psychology certain ha certainly has. Yeah. You know, the judgment and decision-making community has moved almost entirely to business schools, and it's completely changed the field. Yeah, I would, yeah. I'd like just, that would be a fun conversation to have because I've just watched... A lot of, yeah, I just watched like all of Josh Noe's lab be solidly split between people that were going, getting pulled at by, by getting interviews with job talk interviews with business schools or job talk interviews at like small universities to become like, or, you know, to become like professors. So it's just, it, it's just interesting. I didn't even, yeah. I don't think I was exposed to that at the time, but anyways, we have to wrap, but Steve, this was so fun. Come back again. Anytime. The book yeah. is the knowledge illusion. Why we're are never thinking what well, we never think alone. And um, yeah. Great. We'll Thanks so much. Yeah, really exciting. Great seeing you again, Kate. And meeting you. Ben, you're muted. You're muted. You're just talking. We will be back tomorrow. We have no idea who the guest is going to be, but it will be resolved before 23 hours and one minute from now. And until then, Kate? Um, we don't have fun anymore. Uh, but we do have, apparently, have been going through an entire, like, uh, empathy study for the last 546 episodes through the selective eyes-only version of, jo of Ben's dog shirt. Uh, so we're that is the laugh. It is, it, you know? You have to hold your arms like that so you can see the ears. 
I can't believe you have this shirt. This is like the first. You are literally the first. This is also like exactly One thing. the 540. We, we now know the, the penetration of dog shirts <laughs> in, in lieu of fun guest lives. It is one in 546. Uh, Steve Sloman, you're a great American. And uh, aren't you Canadian? I'm both. I'm both. Well, you're a great dual <laughs> national, and you're particularly excellent for having dog shirts. We will be back tomorrow.